This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by A&E's hit series, Bates Motel. Catch the new season when it returns, Monday, March 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern on A&E. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazelle Amami. On this week's show, we'll discuss what TV tropes we wish would die and Hulu's Stephen King adaptation, 112263. Plus, we're joined by Steve Zissis, star of HBO's Togetherness. That's all coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. I'm here with Vulture TV columnist Margaret Lyons and TV critic Matt Solar Seitz. Hi, Gazelle. Hi. Hello. So I wanted to switch things up today and start off with the listener questions. Yay. I can't handle it. (laughs) (laughs) And for the record, we get so many great questions. So if we haven't answered yours yet, please don't be offended and keep them coming. We're so interested in what you guys are asking. They've been really fun and, and interesting, so keep them coming. And we've got two really interesting ones today, I think. Uh, the first one is from Jamie. Jamie writes, Margaret and Matt have both often spoken about how tired of certain shows they are. Margaret, I'm looking at your disdain for white male crisis shows. <laughs> Heavy on the addiction and prostitutes and masculinity woes. If you could retire any conceit for a show or familiar tropes or premises, what would you choose? Yeah, that that white male crisis thing, I'm pretty tired of. It's a big one. Um, That said, there are plenty of shows I love that would also fit that description. So I think mostly what I'm really tired of is like flabby attempts at that and and attempts at that that have nothing to say and nothing that is really adding to the conversation. I'm within that genre. I'm super, super tired of long suffering wife. I think the sort of degree to which female characters on those shows are often underwritten is something I'm I'm really super, super done with. Um, adjacent to that is obviously going to be Sad Cop. Cop who's sad. <laughs> cop who takes it personally. Cop who does things his way or her way. That kind of stuff I'm like just real, I real done with. And you fold talk a- about the Sad Cop. Right? <laughs> and then you fold, you fold all of those together and you get the American remake of Prime Suspect. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Well, I mean, Prime Suspect at least has a female lead, but uh, like I'm just really, really bored by that. Like, I'd almost rather see like a really noble failure in another. Or I, I would certainly rather see a really noble failure in some other baffling genre than I don't know, just like another sort of CBS cop procedural or like um, he's a cop who has this like one special thing, and and so. The bureau tolerates his whatever because when the when push comes to shove, blah blah blah. I also am really really tired of normalizing police violence on television. Like, oh yeah, yeah, like that's that, a big one. I think on especially on the sort of Dick Wolf family of Chicago shows right now that comes up a ton, and it strikes me as like super inappropriate and awkward, and especially in the context of Chicago's own profound issues with police brutality. Um, that oftentimes, even even if that character is framed as an anti-hero, they're still the you're still supposed to like love him even though he's so bad and it's just like oh i actually like if somebody says that they want a lawyer like i'm not actually charmed by a cop who who does not like follow along with that do you know what i mean like yeah. i oh, i don't find that like 
like a scampy, delightful, like, like oh, he's so bad. It's just like, nope, that's really, really fucked up. And that's um, things that normalize that uh, don't appeal to me at all. When uh, 24 was going off the air, I did a series of video essays for the Museum of the Moving Image, and we did an entire chapter on torture, on the show's presentation of torture, and we linked it to this continuum that dated back to really the late 60s, early 70s, which is like shortly after the Miranda warning Mm. went into effect. And Mm -hmm. police were very frustrated, and a lot of law and order people thought that it was like hurting the police's ability to do their job and you got movies like Dirty Harry and that the French connection and those kind of anti-hero things that guys like Jack Bauer come out of but that's a pet peeve of mine too speaking of 24 another trope I could do without is the Middle Eastern terrorist oh my god (laughs) which is just like the only way to have a Middle Eastern person on a TV show and the emasculated (laughs) Asian male which oh my god you know they both uh, I mean I think we're steering a little more away from that, the Asian male trope, with shows like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and Master of None. But the Middle Eastern terrorist is still very it's much with us. It's still very much with us. Nothing has really budged in that regard. The X-Files did it. The X-Files, the X-Files just, just did, did it, it this week. Yeah. yeah. And you just knew, I just knew as soon as that guy got in the car and started driving and looking kind of haunted and troubled... I knew immediately what kind of music we were going to hear on the soundtrack. <laughs> and it was, and sure enough, it was like, uh, like, you know, it's like the, yeah, the yeah. canned, oh, like, God. music library version of, quote, Arabic music. And another somewhat related trope, the ugly guy who gets the hot girl where you're just supposed to believe it because he's so awesome. And, not, I mean, in some cases, it makes sense. Um, on, like, Sex in the City, they actually, like, talk about it with Charlotte and Harry and, you know, that... It's something they acknowledge, but it just happens so much where you're like, that girl would really just never go for that guy in real life. <laughs> She's so hot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think like that sort of tends to bother me more when the character depiction of our quote-unquote ugly guy is that he's in no capacity, like, interesting, compelling, funny, nice, right? Like, I, I don't... I don't think the only way someone's attractive is the way they look, right? Oh, I think I that's agree certainly, with that. we can all have all experienced but, some degree of that. And, but we see this more than we see the reverse. Oh, absolutely we do. Um, I also would really like to put to rest the um, sort of like naked woman body as decoration or set piece, mm-hmm. especially when it's it's very often anonymous dead sex worker. Right. Um, and so much of the show surrounds like abjection of the female body, and I find that to be tiring and distasteful and and part of the worst aspects of our culture and and it's frustrating to see it on on so many prestige shows where you know we have our anti-hero wake up in bed next to a dead prostitute and he has to call the fixer to be like it happened again or whatever like i i don't i don't know my appetite for um here lies a naked woman now the real story begins about the men finding out what happened. And it's just like, mm, right. well, I, I'm i good. Like, I just <laughs> pass. Related to that is uh, what I call the heterosexuality insurance scene at the beginning of, oh, like, a buddy God. cop. Any kind of a, like, tough, bu- a tough guy buddy story. One of the guys wakes up and there's some young, beautiful, naked woman next to him who gets out of bed and puts her bra on. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, close the door on your way out. Yeah, or whatever, I, and that's how we know. Be. That's how we know that he and his partner are not an item. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I will also say this is in a totally different direction. Just like a personal um, 
thing that always always irritates me is when people refer to Chinese as a spoken language. Oh God, it's really frustrating. <laughs> it's, it's often, especially from like a, a police officer or someone in a hospital trying to find a translator. And it's like, well. No one's job is Chinese translator. Perhaps they speak Mandarin. Perhaps they speak Cantonese. Or perhaps they speak any other number of dozens of languages spoken in China. Uh, like, that, yeah, cultural that is awareness is just generally <laughs> ugh, pretty bad. I hate that. I hate um, oh when a dog sees porn and turns its head sideways. <laughs> just fucking hate that. I'm or like, anything, any kind of a you know. I always know. I always know that a television show or movie is in trouble when they cut to the dog. For Except for Fraser. Except for Fraser, but there, but that dog was a genius. That dog actually won the Nobel Prize. Not many people know that for, for five different things. On a sort of like lighter note, I hate empty cup syndrome, um, where you can see very clearly that the actors carrying cups, like a coffee cup or whatever, that it's empty, um, and there's not enough good uh, sort of object work or mime skill afoot, and it's they're just moving their arm. Like, the cup is empty, even though they're pretending to drink out of it. That makes me crazy. That's just, like, a personal pet peeve. And really, really phony baloney text message. Like, Dexter was a real culprit here, but there's a lot of, like, text messaging on screens where it's, like, like center justified, all caps. And just, like looks like a Jeopardy clue. Uh, like, see, but silver, silver lining, at least we are out of the era where email was signified by, you know, this huge banner, like, blocky, you have email. And, and it's like signaled by like you know a toaster with wings like <laughs> landing on the edge of the screen and there's like wing beat noises it's like the giant condor has arrived at its nest to feed its young it's like you know if, if, if that's what actually happened when you send an email nobody would send a fucking email <laughs> nobody I'll send you an email you know <laughs> You it's know, like breakfast God. at Hogwarts. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I like the sound of that, actually. <laughs> yeah, I know. Suddenly my forwarding stupid crap from my dad is like really taking on additional majesty. Uh, We've talked about this, Margaret. The the terrible, poorly written teenager on television. Ugh. Just like, if a show is not a teen-focused show, the teens are terribly written. They just don't talk yeah. like... They're just the most annoying, like garbage people as margaret would say <laughs> yeah or like when characters that like a show that you're never ever in the car and then it's like we're in the car it's like ooh, someone's gonna get in a car accident yes like on parent and the car will come at you from the side through, <laughs> yeah. and you will see it through the driver's side or passenger side window and it will hit the car perpendicularly yep. oh, usually while they're good? listening to a song it'll be something like the carpenters <laughs> like, if you hear like a, a you know if there's a scene where somebody's driving and they never they don't tell you where they're driving to and they seem perfectly happy and content that's when you know they're gonna get hit <laughs> That's just how it goes. Oh, oh, God, I could do this all day. Well, why don't we move on to our question from Steve? I, otherwise, I think we'll oh just God, keep we'll bitching all day. Yeah. We will be. <laughs> but if An hour, have... a straight hour of complaining. <laughs> but if you have uh, one of these that you also hate, let us know. Yes. This is like the complaints hour. Our lines are open. <laughs> this is, it is a complaints department. That's yeah. true. All complaints supplied by us, oddly. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so Steve's question is... You guys frequently refer to shows with a quote-unquote mythology behind them. I don't recall that ever being a term that was used before Lost, but either way, I've never really understood what it means. What's the difference between a show with a mythology and one that simply arrives in a fictional world that already exists, with characters, with backstories, and so forth? Do shows with mythologies require some sort of supernatural element or construct to them? 
Or, as I suspect, it's a term that once meant something and now is just TV critic jargon that doesn't actually have any purpose other than to imply certain shows are smarter, better plotted, and or quote-unquote literary. Boom. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Apply ice directly to the burn. <laughs> Steve, we thank you for your question, obviously. Uh, I think if you were an X-Files fan, you would probably have been hearing the term mythology thrown around a lot uh, um, way before Lost. That was, I think, sort of in like the modern era of television, probably the the main show that, that was considered to have a mythology yeah. to the point where... Uh, if you've listened to any of the episodes where we've talked about the X-Files, there's mythology episodes and standalone episodes or Monster of the Week episodes. And, and those are sort of the two types of X-Files episodes. I will say that uh, sometimes mythology is misapplied. I think I think the word is misapplied. And to me, it's always I think there is some truth to the idea that for, for a show to truly have a mythology, the show has to tell its story in a way that is somewhat removed from the way things would happen in life. Like, like you know, the uh, Mad Men and Breaking Bad have incredibly dense universes with a lot of characters, a lot of plot, and you're jumping back into the past. Sometimes they'll take you into the past and tell you things that happened before the, the, the official run of the show began that inform what the characters are doing. To me, that's not mythology. To me, mythology is something like on The Leftovers where... They're gradually piecing together this world that is unlike our world where, you know, X percentage of the population has been has just disappeared in a four horsemen of the apocalypse type of scenario. So does it require a sci fi or supernatural element that promises some sort of answer? I think it does. I don't think it has to promise some sort of an answer, though. Well, not Um, an answer, but I do think it does. I I think it's like things that could not happen in our world. And they're trying to work towards an answer. Yeah, and I on the show. and you get shows like uh, like like maybe not the but... recent version of Hannibal. I think is borderline because in theory there's no supernatural element to that show, but it feels enough like a like a kind of a supernatural horror film, like a dream film, that I think you could say that that has a mythology. I think it also has to have like a pretty robust artificial aspect of its in-show world that all of the characters take <clears throat> as a given that is extremely different from the way our ordinary world operates. <clears throat> And profoundly informs the sort of forces at play. So I think The Leftovers is a really good example where, you know, the characters don't really know that much more than we do about the circumstances, other than that they are the true lived circumstances for these characters. Uh, I think part of the mythology of that is going to be driving at is Jardin a miracle place? Like the fact that we are going to talk about like what ways is Justin Thoreau's character a shaman or not, even though shaman is not a term used on the show, right? Like I think that level of discipline around that kind of really extreme world building, I think probably would fit under my definition. Well, and there's of a rhyme or reason to it. In theory, there's a rhyme or reason to what happened. We just don't know what it is. Oh yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, I don't think yeah. they're they're pulling it out of their ass or something. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, but it's but, a very but, elaborate thing that is never yes. directly expressed on the show. Yes, and there's no and there's no equivalent in our world to these sorts of things, like as expressed on the show. I also think like there's a difference between when we talk about you know, um, mythology in the sense of these genre shows and just a show having a mythology. You know, that's obviously like a noun that has worth when we talk about The Sopranos or whatever, even though that's not uh, the genre we're talking Like, you have to understand the way, I don't know, suburban America works, right, to sort of understand aspects of how The Sopranos operates. Right. Um, and I'm sure that in writing about those kinds of shows, Matt and I have both used the term mythology at some point, but I think we're talking about a slightly different use of the term for these kinds of genre shows. Um, I think it probably comes out of comic books, 
honestly. I mean, I think the application of that term to television and movies, because the mythology is the mythology of a comic book character is their back their backstory, the backstory of their planet, their people, their whatever, like whatever that origin point was. And I think it's been carried over to shows that have a fantasy or science fiction or horror aspect, um, which probably not coincidentally often feel a bit like a comic book. Like the X Files often felt a lot like a comic yeah. book. And and a show like Hannibal certainly did and, and I think the leftovers like, you know, more of a kind of a graphic novel, I guess you would say, than than something you would buy in a drugstore when you were a kid in the seventies like I did. But that's definitely got an aspect of that. Alias too, with all its Rimbaldi. Oh for sure. Stuff. Ma- maybe to its detriment, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, eventually I loved it, it kind of climbed yeah. <laughs> way up its own uh, mythology, certainly. But yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we're kind of circling around here is the idea that there is important information about the construct of the show that is not said on the show. It's depicted or portrayed or lived, but the the way that the show operates is within that construct, not establishing that construct. Um Right, so there's a lot of stuff you could learn from reading the character Wikipedias for the Game of Thrones characters, for example, that um, is either mentioned briefly or frankly not mentioned at all, but is like part of a character's backstory. That's true for Jessica Jones. Um, yeah. You know, that, that these are aspects that are held true within that world while not being articulated on that show. I think Lost is sort of a prime example of that, reaching like a really frustrating level of how much not on the show you were supposed to be I think aware of maybe I was just so far in the EW bubble of it that (laughs) I felt like the actual show made up like 10% of my lost knowledge at any given point there was just like so much ephemera Um, I think that's maybe a a symptom of mythology shows rather than a defining factor of a mythology show but if there's a very very elaborate um, way to describe all of the goings on and the secret connections between characters that perhaps they themselves are not aware of, and that the show does not go to great lengths to explain, uh, there's a good chance that is a show that we would call a mythology show. Well, and I was just going to say one thing we haven't mentioned really for the most part is comedies, and there are certain comedies that I think could be said to have a mythology, not in the science fiction or, or horror or other genre sense, but something like Community or 30 Rock or Arrested Development I think Ooh, definitely yeah. is something that could be said to have, you know, at very least, a world that is so intricately constructed that you could liken it to something off of, like, the X-Files. My kids are really into 30 Rock right now, so I'm re-watching a lot of episodes just incidentally because they're into it. And, I'm, and, I was, and it occurred to me the other day that you could construct character dossiers for every single one of these major characters based on the asides that they give. When they're saying, like, that, you know, just like Jenna's uh, stories about Mickey Rourke. Itself could or be, Kenneth. Could, it's like, you, Kenneth, do you have a second? He's like, no, what did you hear? Just, yes. I'm only me. <laughs> right, right, right. right. Like Kenneth or, is supposed to have lived Kenneth forever. is immortal. And yeah. Kenneth, like, all yeah. of the sort of crazy And just like, and, the, and all the moments where he, you know, like, he's talking about his childhood, and, and then he mentions my mom's friend, Ron, and a cloud <laughs> passes across his face. You know? Yeah, no, I think you can connect the dots to a lot of things not within the show. Um, certainly Jack's relationship to the Republican Party. Um I think sort of goes beyond <laughs> yeah. what is specifically stated, and and we can sort yes. of there's plenty of ways to imagine like his maneuverings within that and, and sort of corporate America that right. they sort of go beyond what the show actually describes. The next show we're talking about could also be described as having a mythology. Oh, it's going to have a real mythology. <laughs> it's heavy. It's heavy. It's a big mythology yeah. show for sure. I'm going to tell you something. It's going to seem crazy. I need you to go in this closet, take a look around, then 
I'll tell you everything. That was 1960. I need you to go back there to prevent the assassination of John F. Kennedy. This is Hulu's latest show, 11-22-63. It's a Stephen King adaptation that is from producer J.J. Abrams, who, as you may have noticed, we've been talking about a lot of his shows, and they all (laughs) tend to have a mythology. Um, It follows a man named Jake Epping, who's played by James Franco, as he travels through a portal back to the year 1960 in an attempt to prevent the assassination of JFK. And it's Hulu's first kind of bigger show, I would say. They dropped a big chunk of change on this. Yeah, and they're releasing it weekly rather than one big dump like their competitors, Amazon and Netflix. Matt, would you would you like to start us off on your thoughts? You wrote a review I, this week about I it. I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. I've gotten very, very skeptical of shows that I'm worried don't really need to be shows, you know, where it's like, why is this 10 hours? And mm-hmm. I find myself thinking that a lot. And I got, I really got concerned when the first episode of 112263 opened with this, uh, old man in a writing class telling about how his family was murdered. I haven't read the novel. And it turns out that's integral to it. And not only is that story integral to the plot, but but the digressions of this character as he travels back in time and the way that he keeps digressing, getting sidetracked, going into these little cul-de-sacs. That's part of the story, too. And in fact, eventually, to me, seems like it's the, it's the message of the story, if indeed it has one. Like that mm-hmm. this guy is like, he's like Holden Caulfield in in the scene where he describes what the title of that book is about, where he basically, he kind of wants to save everyone, or at the very least, he wants to intervene, because he's a writer, and writers, have, writers, you know, writers of fiction particularly, I think, have a bit of a God complex. I mean, you have to in order to want to create people and play around with their lives. And I liked it. I liked it a lot. And I also liked the the feeling that I was living in this world. You know, now we are going to go to 1960, 1961. We're going to spend some time there, and we're just going to luxuriate in the atmosphere and, and, you know, the cars, the haircuts, the music, the food, all of that stuff. And I was actually a little bit disappointed when it started to go back towards what is supposedly the main plot, which is preventing the assassination of John (laughs) F. Kennedy, because I was just kind of enjoying, like, the black comedy aspects of this guy who can't keep to the mission that he is assigned to himself. Right. You know, he keeps he keeps getting sidetracked into these other things. And, like, it gets to the point where every time he has a conversation with somebody and they start to tell him their tragic story, like, oh, shit, there's one more thing he's got to take care of. I think what I liked was, you know, we've talked about shows that don't know what they are, like mm-hmm. Billions, like trying to be too prestige but falling short. And this is a show that just feels like it knows exactly what it is. Yeah. And it's doing that. And... It almost has like a made-for-TV feel to it in a way. It kind of reminded me of Wayward Pines. Yes. Um, maybe made-for-TV is a little too harsh, but it doesn't have that prestige quality. No, it's, it's definitely kind of... not like up its own ass about how fancy schmancy right. it is. Like it right. has like I think like a fun tone, and I think one of the things that that is really enjoyable, even though the material can get sort of dark and, and pretty heavy, obviously, um, is that because our, char- our our main character is such a fish out of water, he's extremely curious about small things. And, and he has these sort of like goofy aha moments or he's sort of tickled <laughs> by like small aspects of mm-hmm. yeah. what to him are archaic technologies. And, and it's sort of... Or how good the food tastes. And the yeah. reason it tastes so good is because they're using butter and fucking everything. <laughs> <laughs> right. And just to have those kind... Like I like... Um, and I think that's honestly one of J.J. Abrams' sort of hallmarks is that like even in these sort of 
bizarre and extraordinary fantasy circumstances, people are experiencing moments of normal human reaction. It also felt very old-fashioned as a television show, and it reminded me of like something like... Um there used to be this tradition of the road show, like something like, you know, Route 66 or The Fugitive or The Incredible Hulk, where it's basically like... Gun will travel. Yeah, it's like you just, you know, person wanders from point to point, meets people and gets in adventures, you know, kung mm-hmm. fu, sure. I mean, that kind of thing. And this is very much like that, only in its own weird way. And this is, but this is like, instead of an adventure show, it's like adventures and listening. <laughs> It is. It's like every 20 minutes or so, he meets a character. Like that's not like a third grade teacher. It is really right? a nice but way of reading half hour sound really exciting. Well, well but I, I, I really like that part of it. And, and James Franco is, you know, for me, he's kind of hit and miss as an actor. But I think when he, to me, when he really becomes a star is when he is listening to another character and feeling their story. Like he's really feeling their story. Like he's really, there's some empathy going on in the scene. And there's a lot of that in this. And there's a scene in, I guess it's, the second episode where this, uh, you know, he rents a room in a boarding house uh, by uh, from this couple played by Annette O'Toole and the character actor Michael O'Neill, who is on Rectify and 24 and, you know. Sort of a hey, it's that guy. He's he, completely, he's like, you know, craggy-faced, handlebar mustache, you know, Alabama, usually plays a cop or a military guy, one of these. But he's a good actor. This guy's a good actor. And there's a scene where he just tells a story about an atrocity that he was a party to in World War II. And it's, you know, it's a good, solid three-minute monologue, and it's just a guy sitting in a chair in his living room uh, talking, just telling the story. And I thought, like, this is one of the great moments of this guy's life as an actor, probably, to be able to tell the story. And they don't cut to flashbacks. You don't see, like, World War II. He's just talking. So I hauled Ernie onto my back and made a run for it. Ended up down at the river. It seemed like, it seemed like we were in the clear. That's when I saw him. German kid. Couldn't have been more than 17. Asleep on the bank. I wandered away from his unit. I, I don't know. I could have just gone on. Left him there. But I kept thinking maybe he's the one who pulled the trigger on Fuzzy. After the fact, you always tell yourself there was a good reason. Anyway, I put it. It was a real adventure in listening. It is. It's really cool. I had to really focus in that scene. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, one of the things, I, I feel like you're holding these up as examples of what made you think the show was good. And as strong as I thought those scenes were... The fact that that has, like, how is it that within a time travel show to prevent the assassination of JFK, it's more interesting to sit in a boarding house with some guy, right? Like, how is it that we've taken this, like, very interesting construct for a show and somehow built up everything around it to be, frankly, like, I find Jake to be the least interesting character on the show in a lot of ways. And sure, I guess that, like, speaks to the depth and texture that the show is attempting, but it's also, like... Uh, make, like, like make a different show then. I don't know. I guess it just, like, didn't hang together that well for me because as much as I enjoyed all of the asides and there are certainly, like, those character moments and we get, you know, no small parts, uh, only small actors kinds of stuff coming up over and over, there's also a feeling of, like, 
so like why you're gonna prevent the jfk thing or like like what are you doing or are you gonna get lost <laughs> in this other thing <laughs> like oh cool right. you met a lady like fucking focus dude <laughs> like i don't know i don't know like like there was some at like See, but that's, I, I don't me, mind the meeting the, the that, lady stuff. That's the essence of that's the essence of Stephen King to me. Like his books are always, you know, two to three hundred pages longer than they probably need to be, and a lot of it is digressions, and a lot of it's atmosphere and character stuff. And and I, it felt really appropriate here because there were a couple of things going on in this story, and I don't know how much of it to credit to the miniseries and how much of it comes straight out of the novel. Probably a lot of it comes from the novel, yeah. but this one of them is this idea that. The past was a place where the food tastes better, the cars were more interesting, the music was more interesting, and, you know, men were men and women were women, and social roles as we knew them were easier to understand and all this kind of stuff. And here's this guy who goes back into this world, and it's scary. It's actually pretty scary, particularly when these kind of toxic, toxically masculine criminal guys come into the picture. It becomes frightening and and you know we see that this is a world that um we romanticize at our peril like that's very much a part of the show and another thing which is sort of related to that is this idea of wishing you can go back in time and and do do things differently and of course the kennedy assassination the thwarting the kennedy assassination is the biggest example of that and that's the one that everybody you know since 1963 is probably focused on if kennedy had lived this wouldn't have happened this other thing would have happened things would be different and so forth but it's also just as simple as I should have talked to that. That that woman was very attractive and interesting. I should have talked to her when I had the chance. Or that bullied little kid, I never did anything to, stuck, to stick up for him. I should have done something. You know, there's like a million sliding things. Sliding doors. Very of... much. It's a very much a sliding doors thing. And, and, and I find it funny. Like, to me, the, the, the number one thing that I enjoyed the most about the show was how that thing that you're talking about, Margaret, where they're kind of, he keeps kind of wandering off the beaten track and getting distracted. <laughs> to me, that's what makes it funny. Like, it was unexpectedly funny to me. I personally love James Franco as an actor, too. So I think he's funny to watch. Um, and that's part of what keeps me watching it. I don't think we often talk about him as an actor because he does so many things that that becomes what we talk about when it comes to him. He's he's an amazing actor when the material is there and when he's 100% focused. And yeah. I, and and I not too long ago rewatched the James Dean movie that he did. Oh that, yeah, that was his first. That was his first. Role. That was the first role where well, he was on Freaks and Geeks at the time, but that was the first role where I went, "Holy shit, this guy's a really good yeah. actor." Because not only did he, it wasn't enough that he looked kind of like James Dean and did a passable James Dean impression. He gave a performance that indicated that he had read and thought a lot about James Dean and had developed a philosophy about what this guy was about. Like it was a very, very deep performance. Mm -hmm. And a lot of his performances are not on that level. A lot True. of them he are just kind of like, miss. he can be, and he can also be kind of like handsome guy who smiles and can be a wise ass. He can phone it in. He can, he can. <laughs> but other times he's really good. He's yeah. really, really I, good. I also, um, I was happy to see Josh Duhamel because I had a summer in high school where I watched all my children, and that's when I was, <laughs> that's when I became obsessed with him. And it's just, I thought he was really great in this role too. <laughs> he's scary in this. Yeah, yeah, he's the this. yeah. The toxic masculinity you were talking about. Yeah. He plays that really well. Yeah, um, that's something Stephen King is... Um, I'm sure somebody somewhere has written a book, a whole book about this, but, like, Stephen King's portrayal of alpha males, there's an element of critique there that's quite strong, and it runs throughout everything he's ever done. The kind of characters, the kind of male characters that are often held up as paragons of masculinity in Stephen King's fiction, they're, they're like horrific, scary figures. Yeah. 
I so I've only watched a couple episodes of this show so far, and I believe it's eight episodes total, and it's only supposed to be a limited series. How do you think it holds together as a standalone? You know, I have I have watched most, uh, not all of it, but most of it, and uh, and I will say I think it holds together. But I will say it's one of those stories where for me, and I'm a bit of an odd duck, so uh, you know, take this however you want to, but. The more that it gets back to what it's supposed to be, the less interesting I found it. To me, I would have been perfectly happy if this had been the story of a guy who goes back in time to prevent the Kennedy assassination, gets involved with a woman, starts raising her kid, starts a small <laughs> business, and then one day he wakes up and hears the president has been shot, and he's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> or just, like, goes back in time to be Studs Terkel, right? Just yeah. Like, oh, you can change so much. He's like, you can change a lot just by listening to a person's story. And it's like, uh, so you're not going to, like, change history? It's like, no, no, I am changing history through the quiet acceptance of the human condition. Like... Well, that's actually that's actually not that's actually sort of weirdly close to what happens in a couple of scenes. And I was wondering about that. There are a couple of scenes where I was thinking, like, people are telling him stories. And I wonder if they've ever told the story to anybody who's not in their family before. And if by telling that story has something changed in them, are they going to, you know, like not a major life change, but are they going to conduct themselves differently? Are they more likely to tell the story? OK, uh, 11-22-64, it's about just going back in time and <laughs> doing on another listening adventure. What do we describe it as? Adventures in listening? He gets the date wrong. <laughs> Yeah, the date but wrong. you know, it, like it really brings out sort of the core human aspects of of small towns and and how validating it is to just have someone hear your story and shake your hand. You know, so yeah, the listening tour of the <laughs> well, it could still be eleven twenty two sixty three. It would just be a different century. <laughs> Whoa, it's, it, it's three in the stop 3 giving away these ideas for free, dude. <laughs> Send it to yourself in a well, sealed envelope with your signature across the thing. You know. <laughs> This is when you, and that way, when your time traveler comes back, you can be like, "Take who this knew? With you. Yes, who knew? Who knew? Who knew this was an anthology series?" <laughs> Coming up, we have Steve Zissis from Togetherness. But first, a message from our sponsors. This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by A and E's hit series Bates Motel. On Monday, March seventh at nine p.m. Eastern, Bates Motel reopens on A and E for its fourth season, a modern day prequel to Alfred Hitchcock's iconic film Psycho. Bates Motel stars Freddie Highmore as Norman Bates and Vera Farmiga in the Emmy-nominated role of Norma. This season finds Norman and Norma suspicious of one another, and their trust issues will be worse than ever as their mother-son relationship continues to crumble. Watch Norman evolve into the infamous Norman Bates as this season finds him completely losing his grip on reality. Bates Motel knows how to deliver the crazy, and season four promises to get crazier than ever. Be sure to tune in to Bates Motel, Monday, March 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern on A&E. It's it's over. What's it's, over? It's, I'm what? done. You're done with what? What? Going home. You don't have a home. I have all to your my stuff. mom's house. To to Detroit? Yeah. The acting thing is not happening, man. It's just it's it's, it's fucked. I'm fat. I'm getting bald. I can't take the rejection anymore. I can't take skinny, beautiful LA people looking at me like I'm a fucking whale. I don't think everybody thinks you're a whale. Okay. People look at me, man. They want to fucking harpoon me. Okay, this is a setback. We've had these. We We're joined by Steve Zissis, who stars as Alex Pappas on HBO's Togetherness, created by the Duplass brothers. Uh, he plays a struggling actor crashing on his best friend's couch, played by Mark Duplass, during season one. And this season, he's doing much better for himself. Steve, thanks for being with us. Of course. Thanks for having me. You were a co-creator on Togetherness, correct? That's right. And... 
you know, I was reading an interview recently where you talked about how the show was originally going to focus just on you. And it was going to be about your struggling actor character who had some elements of mental illness, which sounds like a great show to me. But I'm wondering at what point that changed and if you could talk about, you know, the genesis of the show. Yeah. So uh, it initially started with Jay Duplass and I uh, collaborating. And um, to make a long story short, what we ended up with was a pilot called Alexander the Great, which focused on uh, the struggling uh, actor character of Alex. You know, we spent a really long time, like, making a great pilot. When we brought it to HBO, they loved it and they wanted to work with us, but they were like, we think if you could broaden this to follow four characters simultaneously rather than focusing on one, it'll give the show more legs. And, of course, we were like, okay. (laughs) Uh, You know, but we took it in stride and we went back to the drawing board and, you know, it took us several months at that point to create what became the pilot for togetherness and to do that we really were we drew upon our our lives uh, a lot to to follow those four characters and to sort of frankenstein uh, the three other characters out of people's lives that we either were related to or friends with or knew of or had or had heard stories of so how come jay didn't end up playing brett and Mark did? <laughs> it's a really good question. <laughs> there was actually a day in the back of Jay's house where, like, we played around with him playing Brett. And um, for whatever reason, it just didn't work out. Um, and initially, actually, Mark wasn't going to be playing Brett either. We saw tons of actors for that role in L.A. I think it just got to a point where Mark was like, I have to play this role. And we were like, yeah, you'll be perfect. (laughs) Um, I mean, God bless all the guys that came in to audition for it. uh, But uh, Mark eventually was the best guy for the role. I think there was something practical, too, about Mark being in it in the sense of uh, HBO really loved the Duplass Brothers brand. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, Mark being in that role also may have helped us sell the show. But you still think Alex is, like, the best character, right? (laughs) (laughs) I love Alex! (laughs) If you you had to critique his character, what would you you say are his strengths and weaknesses? (laughs) If I had to beat up on Alex, um, if it's season one, I would tell Alex to go to Overeaters Anonymous (laughs) um, to work on his impulse control with eating. I would probably be really tough on him in terms of his uh, desire for Tina. I would just be like, look, dude, if she doesn't want you, there's plenty of other fish in the sea. Just let her go. <laughs> it's her loss. <laughs> yeah, no, well, last year we actually asked Amanda Pete who she would choose for her character to be with, and she said you. Would you choose that for Alex if you were looking at what's purely healthy for his character? I think Tina and Alex, they just have chemistry, and... They're sort of on opposite ends in this, of, this, of the personality spectrum in some respects, but they're really elemental and they're dynamic when they're together. And I think that's fun and exciting. And I can see them being a successful couple. I really can. How is a show like this written? I mean, how, how, is, it, how is it put together? Is it, it seems to me just from watching the show that it's a very situationally driven sort of series. And I'm wondering how the scenes come together, how the plot lines come together when it's so much about 
the behavior in the moment of these four main people? Well, we have a writer's room, which is uh, the brothers, me, our editor, Jay Doobie. And then we have two hired season, like female writers from uh, that, that are like sort of seasoned TV writers because, you know, Jay, Mark and I, this is our first time doing TV. So we're largely um, inexperienced. Sometimes that works to our benefit, believe it or not, but other times it doesn't. So it really helps to both have uh, strong female voices in the writer's room and uh, st a strong sense of their uh, craft in terms of TV writing. But the way it works is we basically brainstorm for a while about ideas about the season, character arcs, uh, what we'd like to see happen. And then uh, the brainstorm starts to take more shape. And then we do outlines for each episode. And then once we've come up with an outline for an episode, Jay or Mark will pump out what they call a vomit draft, <laughs> uh, which is a which is a uh, a really rough uh, draft of the episode. And then what we do subsequently is we start refining the draft, giving better joke pitches and uh, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, hold on one second. <laughs> Come here, baby. Get inside. Sorry about that. That's okay. No, it's um, our favorite thing that happens with people on the phone from L.A. <laughs> <laughs> we end up uh, refining it, refining it, and refining it, and that's how we end up with the final draft. Now, once we're there on the day, uh, Mark and Jay, you know, always encourage actors to improvise and put things in their own words. And then occasionally, and this seemed to happen more in the first season, scenes will be discovered uh, on the day. You know, for example, at the end of the pilot in episode one, when Alex and Tina are on the porch and they're talking about their sleeping arrangements, that was a completely improvised uh, scene at the end where uh, Alex starts singing a cookie song and shoves a cookie in her mouth. And like the, the way that whole scene evolved was, was spontaneous and in the moment, uh, which is pretty remarkable because it's the... It's the last scene of, of our pilot. <laughs> um, I think that's also what gives our show a very real dynamic and electric feeling sometimes, especially in those either comedic one-on-one -on -one scenes or those heated, dramatic one-on-one -on -one scenes. They sort of, hopefully, they feel really real. Do you ever discover things in, in, in the moment? when you're working on a scene like that, that altered the direction of a future subplot, and then you have to reckon with that and go like, hmm, the thing we'd planned on doing, maybe it's more interesting to do this other thing. Yeah, I mean, the good thing is, is that, for example, if I'm in a scene with Amanda and it's, it's taking a new turn, Mark and Jay are behind the camera in that moment, paying attention to the, the effects that it could have. So we're, we feel very safe in the scene that they'll come in and be like, okay, that was great, but can you direct it more toward this way? Uh, because we have to think about connecting this later on. But usually all of us as actors are also pretty aware of story at the same time. So we, per we are good with improvising but coloring within the lines at the same time, if that makes sense. Totally. Are there any, like, amazing sort of deleted scenes then? Because it was like, oh, we went with it in the moment, and obviously this could never really make sense in the show, but, yeah, like, Alex and Tina totally made out in this one scene or whatever it was. Like, they had sort of fun um, asides. There is tons of footage of stuff that we didn't use. Um, 
you know, one of the things that Amanda could never get over is in episode uh, five of season one, I'm sort of talking to her behind this uh, shed during the kick the can game. And then uh, I improvised talking about Peter Gallagher's character and saying he's a James Bond villain. And I, I made this really weird face to Amanda and she just broke out laughing. Do you think I'm jealous of Larry? Let me tell you something. Larry is jealous of me. Look at this shit. You taking this in right now? Look at this. 10 pounds lighter already, like that. Mm -hmm. I'm not jealous. That's what you're getting at. Okay. He's a little creepy with his dog, though. He's kind of like an old James Bond villain. He's got the little white dog. Fuck you, stop. He's just like... real laughter she's really laughing she was really surprised uh and she's never gotten over that because i really got her that day but it was great because we captured it you know um but certainly with improv it's sort of like baseball uh batting in the sense that you're going to strike out a lot too you talked about season one alex and season two alex can you talk a little Mm. bit about how how you changed your approach to the role in season two? Does it feel in any way like playing a different character? It does feel different. The main thing is that throughout the course of season one and season two, Alex undergoes a transformation. He undergoes a transformation physically, as we all know from season one. Tina helps him to lose like all this weight and he's trying to get buff or whatever. And But at the same time, he's undergoing... Uh, an emotional transformation as well. He's coming into his own power. He's crawling out of, you know, he's crawling out of the hole of being a struggling actor to being a working actor or almost a successful actor. So um, he's definitely having his uh, swan moment. <laughs> um, and how Alex deals with that, uh, we, 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 uh, we pay attention to in season two. I think his core is still the same, but I think his physical and emotional journey uh, can't help but to uh, change him in some ways. Whose idea was it to have him land apart on what is basically true blood? <laughs> <laughs> I think that was uh, Jay Duplass's, actually. Um, I think it was just something in the writer's room that made us laugh. <laughs> Who is the Dune fan? I, you know what? I don't, neither Mark or I uh, are real Dune fans, but we definitely understood Dune as the ultimate sci-fi, nerdy, sort of prog rock thing to go to. <laughs> so it just sort of, it just sort of jumped out at us. Um, it is kind of the, it is kind of the rush of science fiction. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the rush of science fiction. How much of the show do you think is about niceness? Because I think all the characters sort of see themselves as nice, but then also often run into sort of like roadblocks in their attempt to maintain their image of niceness. You know, uh, Something that someone pointed out to me that is really obvious that I'm o- that I only sort of could articulate once it was pointed out to me is that our show seems special in the sense that all these relationships are very love based, and even though these people are making mistakes and struggling in their own ways, they all really do love each other. 
it seems so obvious and it doesn't seem like a big deal, but like set against sort of the backdrop of what's on TV these days, just having this sort of simple aspect of these people that are trying their best, it makes our show stand out. And it also is exhibited in Brett and Alex's uh, friendship. I mean, we've seen bromances before, certainly in R-rated comedies, and we've seen bromances before. But I think this is the first time we've seen a bromance of this particularly special, loving, sweet nature. The show can feel sort of languid, and and it feels in the sense that it's very naturalistic, and we have these sort of uh, behavior-driven episodes, but it... Then when something sort of is building to an action moment or a climax, it's like takes sort of four episodes before that. Like we're in a lot of there's a lot of time that feels like it's building because this the sort of arc of the season feels very patient in a lot of ways. But there was also moments where I was like, oh, my God, I want all of these people to like scream at each other for 40 minutes and just like release all of this frustration. Like I am going to go to therapy over this show. Like, there's, yeah. It's like, how do you sort of think about those arcs? Is it just like, oh, that's our natural state of being? Or or are there sort of moments where you guys have to put in, um, I don't know, like the the guardrail? Yeah, I mean, it's a combination of the two, but what we really like to do a lot, what we really like to do a lot is hold things and keep the air in situations because we like watching the small emotions and the the reactions of these characters dealing with these really mundane uh, things because that's what our show is about. It's about these intimate sort of awkward interpersonal feeling moments (laughs) and just as in real life if you get in a fight with your boyfriend or your girlfriend uh it may take a couple days for you to build up your anger (laughs) to where you can actually sort of have a fight about something so to me it's very true to life so do you think there's like a central question that the show is asking or trying to answer or there are sort of plot points that come up where you think mm, that doesn't really drive at the the sort of gravitational center of what we're going for i think the show is about individuals pursuing happiness and how to be happy individually and in your relationships whether they're family or friends every time we think we've achieved a certain level of happiness there ends up being a whole new slew of relative dissatisfaction uh, in the new place that you've come to. And there's also the grass is always greener on the other side sort of aspect of the show, which is, you know, Brett and Michelle are married with children. Tina and Alex are are single for the most part up until now. And they, you know, they each sort of have something that the others don't. When we when we pick up this season um, in the in the first episode, Alex has a girlfriend, and I'm curious how you view his relationship with her. I think for Alex, he hasn't had fun uh, in a long time, <laughs> and uh, I see this as fun for him, but I also see it as a bit of a band aid for the deeper sort of heartbreak that he's experienced with Tina. I don't think necessarily that he's conscious of that, though. Yeah. I had one one last question. Um, we had interviewed Mark Duplass late last year about uh, full frontal male nudity on television. Mm. And how, you know, 
He actually had interesting things to say about how he strives for nudity equality on the show. You know, if a woman gets naked, a guy's going to get naked too. Would you ever strip down on on togetherness? Yeah, I would. Um, <laughs> you know, apologies to our fans uh, preemptively. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, if if it's asked of me, I, I would do it, of course. Good answer. <laughs> I mean, if he's going to be on True Blood, basically, right? Like... That's right. Hey, after all, it's not TV, it's HBO. <laughs> Thank you so much, Steve. Thanks so much. Have a great day, y'all. Get a, get a hotel room. It's easy. I'm her sister. It like makes sense that I sleep here. You get a hotel room. I have no money. Well, that's pathetic. Are you, are you kidding? I know. It's horrible. I have no money. I'm no, just this saying. is so awesome. I really just, my life is so abundantly full of blessings and gifts and joy. We're going to have a blast. We're going to be roomies. You were supposed to leave for Detroit. We're going to like share stuff, like like stories, first of all. We're going to share stories, uh, sweatshirts, maybe not that one, no. underwear, socks. Nope. Even share cookies. Cookies. Don't come near me. Don't. Here's the little cookie. Don't. Here's a little I'm not, cookie. I'm not gonna eat that cookie. Open up your Get mouth. Get your fucking stubby fat hands away from me, dude. Eat the little cookie. Eat the little Kill you. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Marge in Charge. I'm Matt Zoller-Sites. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller-Sites. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.